0: I'm not always clear on how things progressed and dating, and I think it was in the beginning of the year, maybe it was back in uh the fall of last year, we decided we would have two dinners a month, and then I got very ambitious about preaching through the book of the Psalms because we'd have more afternoon services, and then I do the prophets in the nights, in the evenings, and the weekends when we have an evening service. Um, it didn't really work out; just became too much of a burden to have two meals a month. So we're back to one, and um, I'm not sure exactly why it's been so long since we've been in the book of the Psalms. But I'd like to return to the Psalms of this afternoon, and uh, last time we we really dwelt upon the first part of the fifth Psalm, and um, I think we covered maybe the first uh, six or eight verses. I don't remember exactly which, but. Um, We went about halfway through, and then I said the next time we were together, I'd complete it. So, really never did it, so I just want to go back over it just a little bit. Uh, It's one of the David Psalms. Um, It's one of the Psalms that is probably categorized as an individual lament. A lament is a complaint. The writers of the Psalms poured out their hearts before God, sometimes on behalf of the community, and that would make it a community lament. But when people would pour out their hearts individually before God, that would be an individual lament. This lamentation is pouring out our complaints in the presence of God in the light of adverse circumstances that have come about. And you notice in the very first words, you see, this is a man who is groaning. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. He's crying. Give attention to the sound of my cry. He's praying, my God and my King, for to you do I pray. His voice is lifted up to the Lord. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. Now, this reality of sacrifice, keeping with the morning ritual, of the morning sacrifice, it may also be that this psalm has some of the qualities of what sometimes is called an approach psalm. It is an individual lament. He's pouring out his heart before God in the light of adverse circumstances. But he also finds the answer is not just in the hills somewhere meditating upon a uh, uh, you know, just a beautiful day. It's in the temple. It's in the place of God's appointed worship. He comes with the appointed sacrifice. And the great question of some of these approach psalms is the question of Psalm fifteen, Psalm twenty-four. It's how may how may I approach the Lord? How may may I ascend into the hill of God? How can I come to the place of God's appointed worship with the knowledge that I would be accepted? And oftentimes the answer is the righteousness of one's heart and intentions, the purity of our heart, as well as the cleanliness of one's hands. God requires that those who approach him in worship would do so with with their hearts. Uh, He desires and demands that they approach him uh, not hypocritically, not living double lives, not seeking to be dishonest, but to be open before God with regard to their ways, that they have clean hands and they have pure hearts. And uh, he reflects upon this as he prepares a sacrifice for you and he keeps watch. We're in verse 4. He says, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. I can't think of approaching the Lord in his worship, even bringing the right kind of sacrifice as I, as I prepare it and offer it. If I'm, if, 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 if I'm someone who delights in wickedness, this God will not allow this. He will not allow a mingling of worship and sin. Sin in the holy place is not; it ought not to be. It needs to be turned from, repented of. We need to take seriously the moral character of this God whom we approach. And he says that the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. The boastful need to humble themselves before this God into whose presence they would come. They can't be filled with their own pride, in their own eyes, viewing themselves, as we saw in Romans this morning, more highly than they ought to. They ought to see themselves soberly in the light of who and what they are before the presence of this God whom they would approach. And he's a God who hates all evildoers. I can't be among the evildoers. I can't take my place among his enemies. and think I'm going to find a place in his worship and, and approaching him. And then he concludes, You you destroy all who speak lies, and the Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Very strong words, but yet it's this hypocrisy, it's this uh, thought that you could somehow mingle together the solemn meeting. Drawing near to God in worship and still clinging to your sins and clinging to your unrighteousnesses and clinging to your injustices and clinging to your pride and self-centeredness. These things need to be turned from. But in contrast to all that God would disdain, all that would disqualify us from making our approach to God, He is determined to come in the proper way. He's, to come to, he's determined to do the contrast between all that he uh, says God will not accept and God will not receive. Not in wickedness, not in pride and in boasting, not speaking lies, not being a bloodthirsty or a deceitful person, but rather I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your heart, your house, and I will bow down towards your holy temple. If I would approach God in worship, it must be through the abundance of his steadfast love. Now, that steadfast love, we've often commented upon it when we've dealt with Old Testament ideas and concepts. is that funny little word that you have to do a little bit of a guttural sound in order to pronounce. It's God's chesed. It's his chesed. It's his steadfast love. It's his love that's in it for the long haul. Is who God declares himself to be when he passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock and said, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant, here it is, in loving kindness, in steadfast love and then also in truth. Uh, it's in the abundance of your steadfast love, your covenant love, your committed love, the love that meet, met Israel in the redemption God effected for them out of Egyptian bondage. The the, the, the love that said, I, I will make you my people. I will bring you to me as, on eagle's wings. I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's that love that's committed to, to his people. And it's in through the abundance of steadfast love, that committed love, that he says, I will come to God. And having received committed love, we seek to give committed love. We seek to return the committed love of God to us with a committed love of our own. And we would say not only that uh, this God is our God, but that we will be his people and we will walk in his ways. And we will look to him to be our guide, even unto death. And then it's the fear of God that also... I'm sorry, there's there's also the, the bowing down towards your holy temple something of a, of a, a reverence and worship, of the bowed knee and the bowed heart in the presence of the living God, bowing down towards your holy temple and doing it in the fear of you with a healthy regard for who God is, his presence, the reality that he is near and we seek then to incline our hearts and our ways to his way in his fear. And then there's the cry in the presence of God as we approach him in the right way. There's the prayer that God would lead us. Lead me, O Lord, verse 8. Lead me in your righteousness. Now for the first time, some of the reason for the groaning, some of the reason for the crying, some of the reason for the praying that brought him to the temple originally, Now, I mean, of course, there were the morning and evening sacrifices, but there was something of his own existential present experience that brought him to pen the words of the psalm out of a heart of groaning, out of a heart of crying. What were the factors? What was going on? Well, he says, there are enemies Lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. That's the problem. He was in the midst of a world of enemies. As he sought to please God, there were many who were enemies of God, God, looking to lead him astray, looking to mock him. So often we see in these early Psalms, they will say to me, where is your God? Look at the fix you're in. Look at the mess you're in. Look at what your life is like. And you say, God is your God? Well, if he was your God, wouldn't he be nearer to you? Wouldn't he be better to you? Wouldn't he make your life easier? But you're going through all this hardship. Where is your God? These are people that are filled with mockery. These are people who, in the light of the first psalm, they sit in the seat of the scoffer. They scoff God. They scoff scoff at true religion. They scoff at God's people. And they become a discouragement to God's people. And we tend to lose our orientation in the midst of enemies. And perhaps being... uh, Someone who may have been the king in Israel, if in fact it was David. And with these enemies who are not only mocking him, they were actually looking to pull him down from his throne. They are looking to assail his kingdom. They are looking to, um, through military might, uh, uh, lead him astray. Lead him out of the ways of the Lord. And so he's calling upon the Lord to lead me in your righteousness because of my enemies. Because of those who would assail me and attack me. Who would bring me to tremble? Bring me to perhaps compromise? Uh, bring me to um, walk out of your ways? These enemies are real, and the danger is real. I need the presence of God to be the one who leads me, who leads me in the pathways of His righteousness. That God would make His way straight before me. And so, interesting, He doesn't say, "Make my way straight before you." Make your way straight before me. He needs to see God's ways. He needs to see that this God is a merciful God. This God is a God of steadfast love. This God is a God of commitment to him in in, in the darkest times, in the most difficult of days, that this God is with him and will not forsake him. It's to know his ways that he wants to have God make uh, straight before him that he might consider God's ways and take solace in God's ways and also follow God's ways so when God's ways are made known to us that's really the path of instruction that's the path of our safety that's the path that we can follow as we see God's ways revealed to us in his word but now though God would indeed hear such a petition that God would lead the psalmist in his righteousness he would make his ways straight before him Yet, um, the enemies are still there. And again, he knows their ferocity. He knows the danger. He knows what these enemies would do if God permitted them, or if they had their way. And so he reminds himself of what these enemies are all about. And it's interesting, this uh, ninth verse is actually quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 3. You have in Romans chapter 3 what's called the Katina. Ever hear of the word katina? Some of you who have recently, I think I've had occasion to mention a katina. A katina is a list of passages that are taken from different places in the Old Testament and it's put next to one another so that uh, there's a whole stream of passages through which an argument can be made and so Paul's making the argument that there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and what he does is he takes a catena of passages from this place that place something from the Psalms something from the prophets something from the law and he splices it all together in a list of passages and you know some people look at this and say well look what Paul's arguing for in Romans chapter 4 3 is not what the psalmist is arguing for Uh, Paul has sort of taken it out of its context to suit his own argument But if you really see what Paul's doing in that catena of passages, is he's taking a passage from the Old Testament that speaks of of the ways of the Jews. Of the Jews, even though they were part of Israel, even though they were part of David's kingdom, they could easily become enemies. And other passages in which it's the Gentiles that are in view some passages view the Gentiles some passages view, view, view the Jews and he takes all those th- things and puts them together in a pistache of quotations in which his argument is being supported from the Old Testament the Old Testament says Jews and Gentiles both are under sin and these passages tell us that Jew and Gentile are both under sin Who's David talking about here? Is he talking about the enemies from without? Is he talking about the Philistines? Maybe. Is he talking about Absalom and those that rose from Israel in rebellion against his throne? Could be. We just don't know. But in either case, um, the argument that Paul is making is really sustained by this. Whether you see it as a statement made about Jews or whether it's about Gentiles. It's really about the common situation of all people everywhere in sin. And what is their situation? Well, there's a lack of truth. Lack of truth. When I thought maybe I was just going to preach on verse nine and following, I thought I would begin the message to, this afternoon by, by quoting that the song by Billy Joel. Some of us remember it. We remember it when it first came out. Some of you say that's one of the oldies from way back when. But it's that song, "Honesty." Hardly ever heard. Everyone is so untrue. "Honesty." Um, I forgot the rest of it. But it's mostly what I need for you. We need honesty in this world. People are such liars. People will seek to lie right to our faces without blushing. And that's what the psalmist is saying. The problem is these are people who will deceive you. These are the people who will lead you astray. These are the people that have no concern for truth. They don't walk in truth. Truth is just to get their way. They have their own um, way. There's no objective truth in their minds. And so there's no truth in their mouth. Again, they speak lies earlier on, it says. Um, in verse 6, you destroy those who speak lies. The, the very time, the very moment they open up their mouths, you just can't trust what is going to come forth from their mouth. And that not only is in their mouth, but their innermost self is destruct, dis- destruction you see the, the, the point is what you say with your mouth can have devastating consequences it can lead to ruin it could lead to uh, destruction it could lead to damnation it could lead to harming other people uh, when we're not speaking the truth and their inmost self is bent upon destruction they want to destroy people they want to just get them out of their way they're a nuisance, they're an inconvenience uh, people aren't precious in their sight there's no sanctity of life. There's no sanctity of truth. There's no sanctity of, of anything. They're all centered upon themselves. Their inmost self says me. Their inmost self says mine. Their inmost self says who cares about anybody but me? I'm, I'm number one, and that's all I'm concerned about. He speaks about their throat being an, an open grave again, um, it's interesting the the word for for soul that's translated life, is often uh, a word that can speak of breath, and also can speak of the area where breath is breathed from, which is the throat, it's kind of a complex idea, this idea of of nephesh, but the the breathing out of our words really comes through our larynx, comes through our throat, right, and so our breath comes out from our throat and uh, as these people speak as they breathe, as they speak forth from their mouths, um whatever whatever comes out of their throat has a tendency to death. An open grave. An open grave. That's what it leads to. It leads to death. There's death in the power of the tongue, I believe it says in one of the Proverbs. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. That's exactly what it says. Um, you can speak words that will... Uh, bring life and words that will bring death words that will heal words that will console words that will elate and lift up and bring cheer and words that will simply crush and devastate and uh, these people don't care what comes out of their mouths they don't care who they destroy they don't care who they hurt Uh, they're just concerned with themselves and so this mouth that's used with such evil intent is also a mouth they use to flatter themselves they have nothing good to say about anybody else They have nothing good to say to anybody else. They have a great deal to say about themselves. And they're filled with self-praise. And they're filled with self-exaltation. At The conclusion of the psalmist's consideration of these enemies, these enemies who he needs to be protected from, and he needs to be preserved from, he says, make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. It's the expression: "Let them be hoisted by their own petard." Go look with that. Go look with that, that one. Up. It's you know Haman who built the gallows for the Jews. That he and his family ultimately are the ones that are placed upon those gallows. Um, that's what he's asking God to do. All of their evil designs. All of their evil purposes. Let those things come to nothing. All the things they want other people to experience. While they experience life with a capital L. With no problems. With no difficulties. Let them experience all the difficulties. All the curses. All the devastation they will want for other people. Let them experience that. It sounds like a harsh prayer. But it's a prayer that is really filled with a certain sense of justice. A certain sense of justice. All that they would seek to do to others, let it happen to them, is what he prays. For they have ultimately uh, rebelled against you because of the abundance of their transgressions. Cast them out. They look to hurt me, but the ultimate thing is they're they're, they're rebelling against God. Kind of like Psalm 51. Against you and you only have they sinned, and they've done that which is evil in your sight. And so... He's concerned about his approach to God. He's concerned that his approach to God wouldn't be hypocritical. It wouldn't be with an evil heart. It wouldn't be with evil designs and intents to live a life of sin and yet mingle with it some religious thing to sanction everything and make it all okay. He recognizes that cannot be. He sees his enemies. He asks for protection from his enemies that God would lead him in righteousness because of his enemies. And then he looks upon his enemies and what they're after, what they want. And He says, let them get what they want for others and their own persons. Let them be the ones who were, as it were, hoisted on their own petards and receive in themselves what they intended for others. But, in contrast to that, let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy always good when the psalm ends on a happy note, when it ends on a note of praise, when it ends on a note of song, when it ends on a note of uh, rejoicing. Spread your protection over them. For those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O oh Lord, you cover him with favor as a shield. Again, the place of worship can often be a place of refuge. Um, again, the uh, person who I'm thinking maybe it was manslaughter, some provisions. I believe there was some provision in the law where they could take hold of the horns of the altar and find protection. The whole idea of sanctuary. You know, the, the, the They couldn't be touched by the, by the uh, avenger of blood. They couldn't be touched by those who would seek to avenge them because they came under the protection of God in his sanctuary. And so whether we think of a literal sanctuary, taking refuge in a church building, um, the point is God himself is our refuge. God himself is our place of protection. God himself is the place we've run to to find help in the midst of um, the onslaughts of the evil one and the onslaughts of a world in sin and the onslaughts of our troubles and our temptations and our afflictions we run to God, we run into him and we find protection in him we find refuge in him and then as we find refuge and relief from all of the, 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 the troubles and all of the pressures and all of the despondencies that, bring, that come our way uh, through an unrighteous world in him there's always place for song Christianity is a singing religion Christianity is a religion of song. The lifting up of the heart in praise and in worship and in thanksgiving. Um, Because of who God is as a refuge for his people, joy can be a reality. Song can be a reality. Ever sing for joy. Even when our outward circumstances is very, very difficult. Yet in our hearts there can always be room for the reality he's not dealt with you after your sins. He's not rewarded you according to your iniquities as the heavens are high above the earth. So great is his mercy towards those who fear, fear him. And then also, it's not only that He's delivered us from the worst of all possible judgments with respect to our sin, but His presence is a reality with us in the emergency, in the fire, in the flame, in the river, in the flood. God is a refuge and a helper and a protector and a sustainer of His people. And that too is a reason for song. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. We may weep in terms of our circumstances. We may be smitten with regard to the evil around us. But there's more in our lives than the evil around us. There is the goodness of the Lord. There is his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his mercy that surrounds us. So... um, in you his exaltation again Paul doesn't say rejoice in all circumstances so much as rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances it's in the Lord the joy comes and so all circumstances can be circumstances of joy where we count it all joy when we fall into many temptations why? because we are in the Lord and in the Lord we have a basis for confidence and in the Lord we have a basis for comfort and solace That the end of this is not destruction. God does not allow His people to go into times of difficulty looking to snuff them out, looking to smack them around, looking to bring them hardships. He's looking to take those hardships and use those hardships ultimately for our benefit. Because a lot of times we don't listen very well to God's Word and we don't keep His laws until the hardships come. And all of a sudden, Lord, I need you in a time of need, an emergency. In the old statement, there's no, there's no atheists in foxholes. When you lose to the war in a foxhole, you're called, Lord, save me! Help me to go home to my family. That's the great thing a soldier at war wants to do. He wants to be able to get home alive. And uh, cries, people cry to God in the time of emergency. We cry to God, the believer, in times of emergency. C.S. Lewis spoke of sufferings as God's megaphone, what we call it today is Dolby sound system. It, it, it ups the volume so that we hear. Is, is Dolby still the thing? Probably not. There's probably lots of things that have replaced it. I'm very much back in my old, you know, 20 years before the newest technology. 40 years before the newest technology. So, that's me. Anyway, that's the point is that we can hear God's voice in the midst of the suffering. And we can learn his ways. He sanctifies our afflictions to our good. Through afflictions we come out as gold and pur- we are purified. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Now the thought of running into God as a refuge, that that's more what we do. We run to God. You are our refuge. You are our help. You are our strength. You run to him. Here God's act- activity is, is sort of made clear. As we run into him... He's quick to cover us with favor as a shield. To surround us with His saving love. To surround us with His presence. And to speak those words of um, His protection for us. He is a God who blesses His people. It is well with the righteous. Regardless of what the circumstances are. It is well with the righteous. And you know we can know that and think that in a time when nothing is gone wrong, when everything is right when everybody is healthy and everybody is, things are going well and the worst problem we have is increasing prices at the pump it's a problem I know but it's not the worst problem in the world but the point is that when real problems come when we get that report from the doctor that uh, says we have quite an amount of work to do to get well again Um, if we'll get well again and maybe this is not possible to find humanly speaking help for when we hear uh, the report um, of our children that they are leaving the ways of the Lord and they're going off into a lifestyle whatever it would be that's not Christian and our hearts are smitten and we feel the anguish of soul when such things occur um, God is a God who then, at that time, surrounds us with his favor, covers us with a shield, is our protector as we run into him. Now, both things need to be present. You can't just say, Lord, i um, not at all going to bring you into my misery. No, the point is, bring God into your misery. That's what this man does. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. It's in an hour of groaning he speaks these words. It's in an hour of groaning he sees his need of God to be present with him in the midst of his troubles, to give ear to the sound of his cry, to hear his voice in the morning, um, to watch his ways as he approaches him in worship to protect him and preserve him when the enemies advance with their scorn and mockery and their dangerous actions against him, um, that this God would be with him, to lead him, to protect and preserve him, to judge his enemies and to make him come forth from whatever circumstances that his enemies would um, plan against him uh, where they are frustrated and maybe even they will actually bear the the end for which they purpose for others that's what he prays for that's how he seeks God in that way and that's how he takes comfort and joy in a time of great danger and affliction and lamentation so this is a real good model for what lamentation is all about how to pray to God uh, anticipating days of difficulty when we're in days of difficulty and uh, don't, give, uh, don't give a teed or attention to the Lamentation Psalms until you get there. <laughs> Start in your heart before you get there. So when you get there, you might have a, a deep and abiding um, reservoir of truth to flow into your soul and to draw from uh, in a time of, of, of danger and a time of need. I hope that's uh, helpful to give you something of a digest and a summary of what we looked at before and uh, how the psalm um, finishes and I hope uh, Psalm 5 becomes something you'll pray often and something you'll take great comfort from well let's go to the Lord and thank him for this psalm, thank him for this day together that we've been able to share, so let's pray Father we thank you for what we've seen in this psalm we thank you for the kind of God that you are uh, we thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you for your committed presence in our lives. We thank you for your protection. We thank you for your guidance to lead us in righteousness. And we thank you that you surround us with your shield and you, you keep us with your care. And we're thankful that you actively engage in, in, for our good and for our protection and for our well-being. We are thankful well we've known a bit of that even today as we've met in your presence that you have been with us strengthen us we pray for all that is before us in the coming week and help us to honor you and all that we would put our hand to do as we ask for these mercies through Jesus our Lord Amen